last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Paston. Right, I'm going to tell you what we're talking about today because I think the first topic, we might disagree on a few things because we're going to talk about the Bank of England. Uh, there's been lots of news about the bank this week and we're going to look at whether it's in need of reform. Also, given you've got loads of books out, Robert, I thought it would be a very good chance to look at what's happening in the publishing industry. So I want to talk about book talk and how that is changing what's happening in the the publishing world. And then we're going to take your questions because there's quite a lot to get through today. So we've got plenty of questions coming too. But I know you, first of all, Robert, want to talk about a big personality in the financial world who has just sadly passed away, don't you? Yes, uh, Charlie Munger. We discovered yesterday that he died. He was, in a sense, the co-founder and partner of the world's greatest investor, Warren Buffett, for 60 years. And Buffett himself would say, that he was as important to turning Berkshire Hathaway, the company they created together, into the literally by a margin the world's most successful conglomerate and investment company. And they both influenced so many business leaders and investors across the world. And just before we get on to the main event today, I just thought I'd share a couple of his words of of wisdom. And the first one, I just want to quote what Warren Buffett said about him, because what Buffett said was that it was Munger who developed Berkshire Hathaway's legendary investing approach. And Buffett said, the blueprint that he, Charlie Munger, gave me was simple. Forget what you know about buying fair businesses at wonderful prices, instead buy wonderful businesses at fair prices. And that was their trick. They always identified these astonishingly robust, solid businesses, and then managed to get them at a decent price. And then I'm going to leave you with one sort of Mungerism, as it were. I love this. He said, of all the sins, envy is a really stupid sin because it's the only one you could never possibly have any fun at. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So when we're talking about fun, we probably ought to move on to... The Bank of England. Always fun. 
Um, Shall we start with what's been going on then? This uh, House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee have uh, put out this kind of punchy report, haven't they? Saying that the Bank of England have, you know, been relying on inadequate forecasting models. And basically, in summary, they could be doing a better job, is what the House of Lords have concluded from all of this, haven't they? Which is not a very uh, controversial decision, given that they failed so comprehensively to forecast inflation in over the last sort of two to three years. And the biggest mistake they made is that they thought that inflation was going to snap back to the 2% target. They did not expect inflation to become much more embedded in the system. This was a major failing by the Bank of England. Part of the system that's supposed to keep the Bank of England honest is every time inflation is at 1% or more away from the 2% target, the governor of the Bank of England is supposed to write a letter to the chancellor explaining how it went wrong and what it's going to do to get inflation back on target. Since June 2020, the governor has written 13 letters. Mm. Do you think he just goes cut and paste each time? Well, there's sort of some variations. I mean, sorry we got it wrong again. Um, I think features fairly heavily. But um, 13 letters since June 2020. And so this has just been, on one measure, just a consistent record of failure. And of course, the reason it matters to all of us is that the earlier you recognise that inflation is a serious problem, the earlier you put up interest rates to correct the problem. And the argument would be that if you put up interest rates early to damp down on inflation, then ultimately you don't have to raise them as much as you would need to once inflation is you know, getting out of hand. And so there is a cost to all of this when the Bank of England gets this wrong, because it means interest rates are higher for longer. And that's, to use a technical expression, a blooming pain. Yeah, because I mean, the fundamental objective of the Bank of England is price stability, isn't it? Because without it, it's almost impossible to you know, have full employment, to have economies that grow into their full potential. So should we talk about, you know, some of the reasons why then that they're not managing or they haven't managed to do the job as well as they should? Because I was listening to Kevin Walsh giving evidence to the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee, and he's the guy who was pretty senior at the Fed. He wrote a report on the Bank of England in 2014 about transparency. That was off the back of all the financial crisis that had happened. And so he wrote that report. And I was was listening to him this week or whenever it was last week giving evidence and he kind of broke it down really well in terms of what the problems are so I think it's worth just going through some of them because I mean first of all which was highlighted in this House of Lords report was this this issue with the data that they're relying on and you know the, the fact that they're using forecasting models that are probably out of date and there's this kind of one way thinking in terms of what they use to work out the numbers that you know there's a massive volatility and the errors can be quite large in terms of working out how prices are changing and all of that can mean that perhaps having a a number 
I know you mentioned there's a range in the UK for our inflation rate, but even having, you know, a number in the head might not be the right thing. So he was talking about maybe perhaps we should have the more Alan Greenspan view of inflation where it's about inflation is on target when changes in prices are such that no one really talks about them or is thinking about them and everyone's just getting on with business. And I know in in practical terms, that might be really hard if there isn't a number to base on. But what do you think, Robert, on this idea? Just to be clear, you know, Greenspan may have said that as a useful way of thinking about it as a problem, but America has a point inflation target. And I think the other point to make is the Bank of England wasn't alone in essentially getting its forecast wrong as inflation rose. So did the Federal Reserve of the US. So did the European Central Bank. This was an international issue. I mean, I think there are a number of things going on here. One of the things that the House of Lords points to, although I have to say, in some ways, I do think that it's a slightly vague and not specific enough report by the House of Lords, but they talk about a lack of diversity of thinking when it comes to members of the MPC, the Monetary Policy Committee, which sets interest rates. And actually, the point about that, you say the forecasting model has proved to be inadequate, and there's no question the forecast model was wrong, right? I mean, I you know pointed out in here, here comes the plug, but the book Bust I've just published is just how wrong that forecasting model was. I'm going to start charging you. By the way, every time you mention your book, you've got to give me a tenner. All right? God, you're going to be rich by the end of this series. Anyway, um, <laughs> the anyway, you know, it is amazing how the forecasting model was just consistently, mm. mostly understating what actually you know how inflation has turned out. But there is a bigger problem. Which is if you have an effective committee of people setting interest rates, they will regard the forecasting model as just one element in what determines their decision, right? Because all decent economists know that forecasting models are not 100% accurate. And these people are supposed to be deploying their common sense and their experience of the world. So the other thing that went wrong was just that there doesn't appear to have been enough challenge on the Monetary Policy Committee to the idea that what goes up, inflation, comes down very sharply, which it hasn't done. Now, during the COVID crisis, they created, I would argue, and many would argue, in the latter phase, too much new money through quantitative easing. This did fuel inflation, and they underestimated the inflationary effects of all of this. So there is an argument here about having enough of a range of views on the Monetary Policy Committee. And I think there is an argument for saying that there was, both here and internationally, a bit too much groupthink among those who were setting these very important interest rates. Yeah. The other thing as well is it, that keeps being talked about is this idea that the central bankers and particularly the Bank of England are, are too involved in politics now. So this kind of mission creep. And, you know, I know Mervyn King, who was on this committee, has complained in the past, hasn't he, about central banks shouldn't be in the political arena. That has changed over the years. Well, it's only changed partly because of something that happened on Mervyn King's watch. The big driver of the link between the central bank and the treasury is money creation, which started when he was governor, what's called quantitative easing. Because when the Bank of England buys government debt and in effect creates new money, it is driving down the interest rate that the government plays to borrow. And inevitably, therefore, at that point, you set up a conflict of interest 
between what may fulfil the Bank of England's mission and what the Chancellor wants. And the biggest example, or the most important example of that is actually right now. And this is the area where you do worry that independence is threatened is that the Bank of England has decided that it's got to, what well, it has already started this process of selling that government debt, right? And when it sells the government debt, what happens? The interest rate paid by the government, by taxpayers, goes up. And so what you get is this tension between what the Bank of England needs to do to get inflation under control and what is in the government's interest, because the last thing the government wants to do is pay more interest on its borrowing. And I certainly understand Mervyn King's point, and it's a very important point, that independence is threatened by quantitative easing. I should just you know, remind him and everybody, he actually was the person who embarked on quantitative easing in this country. Yeah, that was one of the hardest things to explain on the 10 o'clock news, quantitative easing. I remember having to do that with Steph Flanders when it first <laughs> came out, and it was like, oh my God, how are we going to explain this? But the other thing I wanted to ask about this, though, I'm really interested in your thoughts on this, Robert, because what the Bank of England have done and the fact they now keep talking about trying to not have inequality and trying to, you know, we should focus more on climate change and things like that. But what they have done has driven inequality, hasn't it? Because, you know, the low rates that we had for a long time have caused, you know, asset price bubbles. It means the wealthiest have been getting richer. So it's pretty rich of them to be talking about inequality and trying to solve that when what the Bank of England has done over the last decade is really heighten and create a bigger gap in terms of wealth? So certainly the era of free money led to this massive surge in the price of homes and property and assets in general, and that definitely fueled inequality. The Bank of England has a primary function, which is to control inflation. If that leads to rising inequality, then you would argue that then it's the business of the government to put in place measures to offset that. You can't expect the Bank of England, if it's got a sole simple target of controlling inflation, to be able to do anything very much to deal with inequality. That is very much an issue for an elected government. Well, what's the point? What's the point of having inflation as your primary target if it's not about creating more equality? Like, isn't that the whole point of price stability is so that no, we have price, more... Price price, but isn't it about having a more prosperous economy? Isn't it sure. about getting sure. more people in jobs and things? And that will create more equality. So the fundamentals there... Well, without a stable economy and growth, almost nothing is possible, whether it's raising tax revenues for public services or keeping people in work. And to that extent, you're right. But how that money and how that wealth is shared out can never be determined by a central bank. It can only ever be determined by an elected government. But it is by proxy, though, isn't it? That's the point. By proxy, they are determining who's going to be wealthy and who isn't. Yeah, but they, they are powerless in the end. The only tool they have is setting interest rates. Right, You cannot set an interest rate in a way that helps the poor and simultaneously bears down on inflation. It's just you know, it's theoretically impossible, which is why I come back to my point, which is an indirect effect of the way they've managed inflation has been to make inequality worse. But it is down to the government to correct that. It is not down to the Bank of England. But there is an important underlying point here, which we shouldn't get a, away from, because it is something the House of Lords committee said. But again, I thought the House of Lords committee was either disingenuous or just straightforwardly wrong about this. They said part of the problem, one of the reasons the Bank of England isn't doing its job well enough is because it has now too many responsibilities. And it picked up 
the thing that you pointed out, and it's something that Mervyn King has complained about, which is that some time ago, the government said, keep an eye on climate change and take steps to limit the damage that climate change can do to banks and to the economy. I have to say, to be clear, I felt it was bizarre that in a way, the House of Lords Committee focused on this because that is not a requirement of the Monetary Policy Committee. The Financial Policy Committee, which is the part of the Bank of England that is in charge of financial stability, it did have a requirement to keep an eye on climate change. And actually, given the, the way that climate change is capable of wrecking the economy, that doesn't seem to me to be unreasonable. But it doesn't make the Bank of England's task of controlling inflation any more complicated. As it happens, the Chancellor did remove that requirement recently for the Bank of England to keep an eye on climate change. And I think many people would say that was just straightforwardly wrong, given the damage to economic stability and financial stability that climate change can do. I think the bit that the House of Lords Committee did not look at, and I think this was a big mistake, is whether or not the Bank of England now, it's so powerful, it does so many things, it has to keep banks solvent, right? It has to prevent financial instability and it has to control inflation. It was after the financial crisis, George Osborne decided to create this unbelievably powerful institution. And you could argue that actually giving it all those powers, right, has meant that it is stretched too thin and it does none of them as well as it should. Because the other thing, which again, the House of didn't look at, was it didn't stop the crisis in the pension fund market. Do you remember during the whole trust mm. mini budget um, yeah. when, when government bonds were collapsing? That was a failure of its financial stability responsibilities. Nobody has investigated what was the worst failure at the Bank of England, I think, in modern times. And weirdly, nobody's investigated it. And yes, it, you know, along with other central banks, you know, it, it, it hasn't done a brilliant job on controlling inflation, but it's also got this very core responsibility, which is to prevent, you know, a financial crisis and on its watch, a financial crisis happened that it was not expecting. Yeah. I just want to say one point on what you said on something earlier about the climate change thing. I just want to come back on you about that. Because, yeah, I've heard people like Christine Lagarde, head of the ECB, talk about this saying, you know, why shouldn't central banks have a go at helping out on climate change in the medium term if it's driving inflation and, you know, and if it is a challenge to long-term financial stability. But my point is, where does it end because there's a million reasons why climate change is a problem. It's to do with the infrastructure of the country and the fact that, you know, we've got too many people on the roads. There's a, there's a million reasons why. So how much do they get involved with it? That is my point is it feels like the remit is too big. So I do agree with what was said in the House of Lords report on that. You can't have your cake and eat it, can you? You either stick to just price stability and not get involved in all the politics. Hang on. But the Monetary Policy Committee, as opposed to the Financial Policy Committee, the Monetary Policy Committee does not have a formal responsibility to you know, get involved in the battle against climate change. So why are they talking about it then? Because um, Mervyn King, who's on the committee, has a bee in his bonnet about it and he got them to talk about it. But I think it's misleading. And look, if banks, which are regulated by the Bank of England, are pouring a ton of money into projects that are destroying the planet, that will lead to financial instability. And that is completely reasonable for the regulator to say to the financial sector, do not pour money into projects that ultimately, you, you know, they're going to harm you as well, uh, banks, you know, because climate change has potential to do 
desperate damage to the economy, desperate damage to the businesses, and, you know, in an extreme case, lead to soaring bad debt. So it's completely reasonable. But in the meantime, let's put up interest rates to control inflation, which is pushing loads of people into problems with their mortgages, into more debt, which inevitably means they'll make choices which are not based on climate change, which are based on the fact that they want the cheapest and easiest things, more processed food, having to travel in, in certain ways. But it's your so argument. But is your, is, is your argument, therefore, that it's better to have 5 or 6% inflation for years and years and years? No, my argument is not that. Of course, it's not that. My point is, I just think they are way more involved in impacting inequality and climate change. Then, you know, I think the remit isn't just price stability anymore, is it? It feels like it's way more than that because price stability now to be able to control inflation is such a global thing, way more than it was decades and decades ago because it's impacted more by global prices and things. So it just feels like the Bank of England's role has changed and it, it hasn't been reflected in how they operate or how they decide interest rates. I think it, we're still stuck in the past in terms of how we analyse data and how everything's done. It hasn't moved forward. I think it is moving forward. And I think that, you know, the idea that, you know, inflation is partly a global phenomenon has been true, you know, forever. It's way more pressure now like with energy prices. Everything is way more about what's happening in the global economy. I guess my beef is using interest rates to control inflation. I just think is not the best way now. But do I have a solution? No. <laughs> well, you know, you can read bust because there are. I talk talk about other ways of controlling it. <laughs> There's twenty quid. There's twenty right. quid, yeah, because there are. I do talk about various forms of different kind of price controls you could also use alongside interest rates. At the end of the day, interest rates are an important tool, and if you're worried about which inevitably we should be inequality and the impact on the poor, then it is up to elected governments to sort those problems. If you're going to get angry, get angry with governments. Oh, I'm just angry with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, listen, you know, you mentioned your book. What was it called times. again? Oh, it's called Bust. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Bust. Yeah. You're actually going to be on my show talking about. Uh, oh, no, you're talking about your, your thriller, aren't you, I'm tomorrow on the both. show? Oh, are you? Okay, <laughs> right, there we are. You're going to owe me a fortune tomorrow. I certainly am, yeah. Shall we have a break? And then I want to talk about the book industry, actually, because there's loads of really interesting stuff going on there. But for now, let's have a quick break. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. 
Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Peston. So you said we're going to pick up on what used to be perhaps the most boring fuddy-duddy industry of all industries, the publishing industry, but it's been subject to extraordinary, fascinating change. So talk us through that. Yeah, I mean, like you, Robert, I am a big reader. I love books. I love, you know, going to uh, all the different book festivals and everything like that. But there's this really interesting thing going on online called Book Talk, which is massively transforming the landscape of selling books. So if you don't know what it is, this is basically people who love books filming themselves, reviewing books or reading them and then putting them on TikTok hence why it's called Book Talk. And so they use this hashtag, Book Talk. I suppose it's like a massive online book club, but the hashtag itself has had something like over 90 billion views in the past year. And it's really impacted the sales of authors' books. I mean, just to put some numbers on it in terms of the difference it's making to selling books, Book Talk helped adult fiction writers sell 20 million print books in 2021. And as of mid-2022, which is the latest stats we have, sales from this increased another 50%. So it's looking pretty stratospheric at the moment in terms of how much Book Talk is uh, influencing what's going on in publishing. A really good example is Colleen Hoover, who had been publishing for years without selling, you know, an enormous amount of books. But then certain book talkers became obsessed with her and she suddenly became really popular. So she went from selling something like just over 200,000 books to now over 20 million books worldwide. And one of her books, which had come out like five years earlier, suddenly became a number one bestseller. And there's quite a few examples of that. There's another woman called Rebecca Yaros, who has become the fastest selling sci-fi novel ever with her books at this fourth wing and Iron Flame on the basis of book talkers. But what's really interesting about all of this, and as you say, my goodness, the sales. I mean, I was looking up Colleen Hoover and there was a period when she had, believe it or not, nine out of the top 50 New York Times bestsellers in paperbacks, which is absolutely astonishing. But talking to publishers, you know, you may have noticed I've uh, got a couple of books out at the moment, so I do talk to publishers a lot. £30. And, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Ding, 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 ding. You're not going to make any money from this podcast anymore, Robert. Gosh, it's, you're absolutely right. I'm going to be broke. Go on, what were you going to say? Um, so talking to um, publishers, what they sort of disclose, and it's been uncomfortable for them, is that they just cannot control the sort of book talk process. And it's as though there are now two publishing industries. So, you know, publishers do the normal thing of publishing people like you and me, and then, you know, they try and get serialization in newspapers to get people interested, or, you know, they run, you could see pictures of my book on the London Underground, and they do sort of conventional advertising campaigns and do the traditional marketing. They tried when this book talk thing took off a couple of years ago to give money to the equivalent of influencers in order to get them to promote their books. And it just failed miserably yeah. because the public can tell when a young person is talking honestly from the heart about a book and when effectively, 
you know, they're being sponsored to do so. And, you know, I went back and, and re-looked at, you know, so there were a couple of young people from Brighton in their teams and back in 2021. And one of the reasons that, that you know, their promotions on Book Talk of Books, that they weren't, they weren't paid to do this work just because they were literally crying on camera. Yeah, people love watching that. And you can't pay for that. That is a spontaneous reaction. Yeah. Sphere, for example, which is an imprint of Hachette, what they've done is they, rather than paying influencers, they've just got a team that scours TikTok to look for books that may take off as a result. Because the other thing which is quite interesting about these authors is quite a lot of these authors that are being promoted don't have publishers. They self-publish, right? Because there are all these ways. So Kindle has a sort of self-publishing bit. And and there are lots of different ways of self-publishing now. A lot of these authors that have now become multimillionaires as a result of BookTok were originally self-publishing. And then, you know, a Penguin or a Sphere identifies them and buys them up it's quite like in a way what happened in the music industry where you had all you know you had people building up a following on social media and then at that point the record company said okay we can see you've got a following and we'll buy you up and again it all comes back to something we talked about a lot the importance of digital data because one of the things that this is all about whether you're in music or in publishing is you look at the data about you know, who is responding to the TikTok. And then you think, okay, wow, there's going to be a big market here. Yeah, as you say, it's totally about authenticity. So I was chatting to a book talker recently um, called Emily Russell, and she was um, studying biomedical science and was reading a lot in her spare time, and, and particularly during the lockdown. She just started filming herself reading. Her boyfriend was like, oh, you know, tell me what you've been reading and all that. So she started filming herself reading and doing like these time lapses. And then her boyfriend was like, go on, put you should put them online and exactly that happened people were then having these you know reactions to her her kind of tear-jerking moments she'd have from the book or the kind of dramatic stuff going on and really quickly she built up tens of thousands of followers millions of likes she now makes something like five to six videos a week it's become a pretty much a full-time job but she was saying publishers now send her books all the time, but she tries not to like, you know, do that because it then, as you say, it loses the authenticity. But the thing I'm most interested in that's going on in the book talk world as well, from chatting to my mate and publishing, is that they're changing the genres as well. And I was going to ask you about that. So I've only recently come across the concept of romanticy. Yes. So, <laughs> so there's, it's really interesting. So that now, and rather than having, you know, your crime, your chiclet or whatever else, they're now doing, some of the ones they've created these tropes they're like enemies to lovers or dark academia a lot of them are around the kind of sci-fi fantasy i saw dark academia what is dark academia i've got no idea but it's just <laughs> it's one of the genres that's been created i know yeah so shall we speculate what dark academia is it about I mean, professors going rogue, you know, like Harry Potter, would that be dark academia? It probably would, wouldn't it? Is it a vampire professor? I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, it's probably that type of thing, isn't it? But um, this year they, they set up the first ever Book Talk Awards and like the authors were desperate to be there. Like it was, it, my, my friend in publishing was saying it was unreal how everyone was trying to get in on the act. And, you know, you now get Waterstones doing book talk roadshows. You'll find Barnes & Noble or whoever will have areas of the shop, which are the kind of book talk recommendations. So it is filtering through. Can I just tell you one other quick story about another, somebody else I interviewed in the book talk world? And this is really fascinating from the author's perspective. So there's a psychological thriller called The Perfect Marriage 
Page and the author of it was telling me she got her husband called Drew to pretend that he was the main character of the book and they just did this daft like video that they put out and the book is about a murder a husband murdering someone and everyone thought that this was a real thing and that he was actually a real murderer so she ended up having to change her TikTok profile to say my husband isn't a murderer but she got millions of views and became a New York Times and Amazon bestseller on the basis of it and it allowed her to become a full-time author because she did this really crazy viral video but still has to tell everyone her husband's not a murderer so it's really interesting how you know that that change in books like you say it's not just about the kind of adverts on the the tube or the bus stops or whatever now there's this whole other side of you know if you're creative and authentic then you could make yourself a big author so can i ask really a question about opportunities in these two big industries of music and literature or publishing as it were um one of the things that's been a concern about the digital revolution in music is that in the end it was supposed to democratize it was supposed to mean that if you're a little band or just a singer working in your bedroom you'd have an opportunity to somehow make it globally but in practice that hasn't happened very often in practice the digital revolution appears to have just reinforced the power of the really big stars something slightly different seems to be happening in publishing which is that people independent of the big publishers via booktok appear to have essentially had the opportunity to tap into a global market, you know, without having to be essentially taken over, certainly at the early stages of their career, by these enormous publishing giants. So I'm, I'm just interested in whether or not in publishing digital, in the, in the sense book talk, has been sort of more democratising, has actually created more of a level playing field for people who don't actually have an established reputation, whether to an extent you could argue the digital revolution in music has actually made Universal and the like more powerful than ever. I'm not sure that is true, actually, of the publishing world. What what do you think? Well, I don't know. I think whenever I go, and you'll have seen this, whenever I go, and I do a lot of work in the the crime fiction world and go to Harrogate Crime Writing Festival every year, and I judge the crime novel of the year at Harrogate. And um, there's an incredible amount of people there who come up to me with self-published books and say, can you talk about my book? Can you read my book? There's still an enormous amount of people. Who get nowhere. Yes. And then you get all the celebrities, you being one of them, coming in with these crime thrillers who are taking up the slots for these people who probably have got a good (laughs) crime. I'm not saying yours, isn't it? But I'm saying it is interesting how you're right. There's still a lot of people out there who are you know, self-publishing, trying to get out there and make it and aren't and maybe writing books for a a long, long time and getting nowhere. Like one of my good friends is Anne Cleves, who created the Vera series and and Shetland and uh, the Matthew Venn series. She's an amazing crime writer. But for years and years and years and years, she sold absolutely nothing well, not many. And then her big break was the head of, I think it was head of drama at ITV, was looking for a book to take on holiday and was in a charity shop and just happened to pick up her book. And at that point, it was when Frost on Sunday night was coming to an end and read her book and was like, oh my God, this Vera character is perfect Sunday night telly. And, you know, then managed to get Brenda Blethyn to pay Vera. And yeah, the rest is history. And this has made Anne really successful. But she was, you know, she will say like for a long, long time, she was a poor writer. In all these creative industries, um, you know, it's terrifying how there's always a sort of luck does play a role and just, you know, being heard if you're in the music industry by the right person at the right time or read in this case by the right person makes a huge difference. The other thing, though, that is also interesting about both industries 
is they are both winner takes seems to take all industries. You know, our now colleague in you know the Gull Hanger stable, Richard Osman, who's doing his rest is podcast with Marina Hyde. The rest is entertainment. Yeah. So I was really because obviously I've been following the sales of my book, which have been fine, but I was absolutely staggered when his book was released, the latest one. He sold in week one, I don't know, something like 80, 90, 100,000 copies. And the number two in the charts sold, I think, fewer than 10,000. And it is uh, striking to me the way that there are some authors who just go off into the stratosphere and don't just sell more than other authors, but they sell, I mean, like a universe more than other authors. And in that sense, it's very like music. You know, we, we talked about the Swift phenomenon and again, it is true of all these industries. You get people who are able to make a decent living and then you get these absolute megastars. Yeah. And like you say, it's in every industry. It's fascinating how they work out the bestseller list, though, because, you know, if you're Richard Osman, you're always going to be top and everyone absolutely panics if their book's coming out at the same time as an Osman book. But you don't actually need to sell as many as people might think. You can just sell over, you know, over a thousand in a week, can't you? And end up on the Sunday Times bestseller list. If you just happen to have a book come out in a week when sales are low, you can get in the top 10 with relatively low numbers of sales. And then you put it on your cover saying, you know, so on the cover of my books, it says Sunday Times best-selling, best-selling author because I've been lucky enough at various times to, to have got there, but sadly never sold as many as um, as Richard Osman. But we, we, I live in hope. You live in hope and you will definitely get there one day, Robert. I, I just know it, especially with all, all these mentions on the podcast. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll pay you another tenner for another mention. Yeah. <laughs> right. Should we take some questions, do you think? Should we have a look at them? Um, Just to remind everyone, the email is restismoney at gmail.com or you can send them in on our social media as well. So we've got some wonderful questions again. Uh, Thanks to all of you for sending them in. Yes, should we take this question here about, this one is from Hagger Ali who um, says, they've got a question about boycotts. Does it really have an effect on a business's agenda? Uh, Did the current campaign to boycott businesses that are directly supporting the IDF yield any effect on those companies? If this goes on for a while, what does this mean for those businesses and their workers? So there is precedent in history of boycotts having a big impact on how businesses behave. You'll probably remember that before Nelson Mandela took over in South Africa before the collapse of the apartheid regime. There was a big campaign against Barclays, which had a huge operation in South Africa. There was a big boycott Barclays campaign in Britain, and eventually Barclays did pull out of South Africa. And so it definitely had a big impact on that business. Whether it actually had a big impact on its own in South Africa is, it's harder to prove. But in the end, there was a peaceful transition away from the appalling apartheid system and therefore i think you know international commercial pressure almost certainly did have a positive impact it's harder in a situation kind of tragedy crisis we're seeing in israel and gaza because of course opinions are so much more split among citizens so yes and you'll have seen online there are lots of campaigns at the moment to persuade customers to boycott all sorts of companies that are allegedly in different ways supporting Israel and supporting its military effort. But you know, if you look at, for example, opinion polls, British public opinion is very split on whether they support Israel, whether they support Palestinians, where they think right or wrong is. There are generational differences, so it's quite striking 
the older people, and certainly it also looks as though people who are well, I support the Conservative Party are less critical of Israel and more supportive of Israel. And those on the left and the younger people are much more concerned about the plight of Palestinians in Gaza. And when you have, you know, public opinion so split, it's quite difficult to see how that kind of commercial pressure is likely to yield any big change either within Israel, given that this boycott at the moment is all aimed at basically trying to persuade it. Israel to go for a, a longer-term formal ceasefire. I don't know. I think it's unlikely that it's going to have particular pressure in this situation because you know this is not a situation unlike South Africa, where you might say liberal, sensible opinion is of one mind. More or less, everybody liberal and sensible in the eighties thought apartheid was appalling and should end in South Africa. I would say opinion is well, not I'd say it's obvious. Opinion is much more split when it comes to Israel and Gaza. Right, let's have a, a look at another question from Chris here, who says, can you explain what growth is? Is it just an increase of GDP? Or does it have some other metrics like employment figures, etc.? It's a good question, isn't it? Because we always talk about growth. Growth is the thing that we hear politicians using all the time to justify or explain things that are going on in the world. Well, it's both complicated and simple in, in the sense that actually, when most politicians use it, and certainly when statisticians use it, they are talking exclusively about GDP and national yeah. income. But the question is whether that's right or not, because one of the things that is a problem is that if you are focusing just on growth in the round, then that doesn't tell you very much about what's happening, as we know, to living standards of individual people. I mean, the, the simplest way of explaining this is... If your population is growing all the time, then almost automatically the amount that you produce as a country will be growing. But if your population is growing faster than national income, GDP, then GDP per head is actually falling. One of the things that was really striking, we mentioned this last week, that the Office of Budget Responsibility pointed out that GDP is back to where it was before the pandemic, but GDP per head is lower than it was before the mm. pandemic because immigration has significantly increased the size of the British population. And it is GDP per head that determines, to an extent, what we get paid in terms of our incomes and our uh, wages. It's not GDP in the round. See, productivity is this other incredibly important issue that we talk about, the amount that each of us yeah. produces. That's also got a huge link to our prosperity and our wages as individuals. And then, of course, unemployment is incredibly important. And in the States, they take unemployment way more seriously when it comes to assessing you know what's happening to collective incomes than we do over here and i mean unemployment is vital in terms of us assessing whether the economy is doing well or badly but to get back to the original point growth means growth in gdp but we should when we're discussing the broader issue of prosperity we should look at many many other measures and two that i care about most are one productivity that's how much we produce per person and secondly income what what, what we earn per head of population living standards the other thing about it as well is that they're always out of date, the figures, aren't they? In the sense of, you know, by the time you get them, they're telling you about the past. And also every time we go to the next quarter or whatever, they, they're being revised again. So they, they don't really tell you much when you get them at the time, do they? They're so GDP official growth figures are always telling you about history. That's totally right. And forecasts are always wrong. 
So yeah. <laughs> uh, I, don't know, I don't know why we bother. Yeah. That, well, should we end the show there? With well, that on happy that note. note. <laughs> See you next week. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.